0: Father, would you speak your word to our minds, that we might be, that we might understand your word. Would you speak it to our hearts, that we might be lovers of your word. Would you speak it to our hands and to our feet, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers of it also. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the joys of parenting, at least for me, is exposure to children's books. One of the books that we love in our house is called The Donut Chef. Some of you will know it. It's a pretty simple story. A donut chef opens a donut shop, and business is going well. A competitor moves next door, and in the competition between the two donut shops, the donut chefs begin to make stranger and stranger and stranger donuts to appeal to their now donut-loving clientele. Just to give you a little bit of a flavor of the donuts, here's how one of the pages goes. They made new flavors quite bizarre, like cherry-frosted lemon bar and peanut-brickled buttermilk and gooey cocoa mocha silk. They tried new shapes beyond just rings. Their donuts were such crazy things. Some were square and some were starry. Some looked just like calamari. Some were airy. Some were coney. Some resembled macaroni. At which point, Debbie Sue, a two-year-old, walks into the shop and looks for her favorite donut and can't find it, and she asks the unthinkable question. The choice of donuts left her dazed, said Debbie Sue, but I want glazed. The crowd went silent, jaws hung low, a flavor choice from long ago. And the book goes on. Everyone, it turns out, in the town actually likes glazed donuts and they want them back but no one but the two-year-old had the courage to say it. And so the donut shop was back to its old-fashioned roots. silly story raises an actually, I think, significant question. How much choice is too much choice? From a kid's story to a recent story in the Atlantic magazine about a woman, and I'll try and be delicate here, who wanted and who got a sex reassignment surgery, but only a partial one because she still wanted to be able to have a baby. After the surgery, though, after the surgery, she did have a baby. But then she got mad at the doctors because she wanted to be able to nurse her baby, but she couldn't as a result of the initial surgery that she had requested. And so she felt as if the medical community wasn't supporting her. And while I want to be sensitive to the incredibly complex issues today around gender and sexuality, this story, too, raises the question, how much choice is too much choice? Are we meant to be making these sorts of decisions? This last story may be extreme, but it's not actually that extreme, because it's just reflective of how the world and how contemporary society has taught us to think about ourselves. We are fundamentally choosers. We are responsible to construct and to make our own identity. And the choices before us, like Debbie Sue's donuts, are virtually limitless. Baskin-Robbins' 31 flavors, frankly, is quaint. We can get whatever we want, and we can get it tomorrow. Thank you, Amazon Prime. But all of this choice comes at a cost. Because the more we become addicted to choice, the more we begin to feel ourselves able to and responsible to make ourselves via the choices that we have. Or if we're not happy with who we are, to remake ourselves. Or on this January 1, if you're not happy with yourself, to re remake yourselves. The responsibility lies with you. The choices are limitless. And life begins to look something like this. A maze of doors with each door leading to another hexagon. What are they, hexagon, pentagon? I was never very good at math. (coughs) And so you find yourself in one of these rooms with multiple doors, which brings you to another room with more doors. Should I date this person? Should I marry them? Will it bring me closer to my desired future? What if I choose the wrong door? Will I end up in a room that I don't wanna be in? Should I take this job? Should I take that job? Should I take any job? Can I change jobs? Can I get a job? Should we have kids? How many? Where should they go to school? If I make the wrong decision, will it set them back in life? Should I stay home? Should I work outside the home? When should I retire, and what should I do in retirement? Now, there's nothing wrong with any of these questions, of course. The problem is when they become knit into a project of identity construction, when you think that the answer to those questions will fundamentally make or break your life. And when this happens, they become these questions become paralyzing. So I think we are witnessing a whole generation of young people today who can't make decisions because their identity is at stake. Too much is on the line who can bear such responsibility? If I choose this door and go into this room, what if my life isn't like what I expected it to be or what I wanted it to be like? What if I choose the wrong door? And against this false gospel of self-constructed life, we heard read for us this morning a very different gospel with a very different vision that insists that you are not responsible to make your own life, that you have been given an identity as a gift. Or as that old catechism that I learned in seventh grade put it, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. The church that I was pastoring in Vancouver. In the profession of faith class, I made all of the the profession of faith students memorize that question and answer. And the first thing they did in their council interview was recite question and answer one individually to the council. And they universally said it was the most important thing they got in the class. To, to, To hear and to have seep deep down into their bones this gospel. What is your only comfort? Not that I make myself, but that I belong. I am not my own. Before we get into the guts of the passage, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 similarly rebukes, like the Heidelberg Catechism, the self-constructed life. And before we get into the guts of the passage, two quick things, two quick parts of the passage that put the lie to the self-constructed life on this New Year's Day. Here's a list uh, on the screen of all of the major verbs. Not all of them, but all of the main verbs in the passage. Blessed, chose predestined, blessed, have, lavish grace, made known, set forth, have obtained, and were sealed. First, though, if you have that passage in your bulletin or if you have the Bible in front of you, look at the subject of all of these verbs. Just scan your eyes over the passage. Who is the primary actor in this passage? It's God. God is the subject of almost every verb in this text. He is the one who is doing things. The only time that we are the subject of the verbs, uh, in verse 7 and then again in verse 13, we have something, we have redemption, but we only have it because we're in Christ. Anytime we're the subject of, uh, of the verb, we and we have obtained and we're sealed, it's only because we are in Christ. Nothing in this passage is about us, other than that we are the recipients of a gift. What could possibly be a greater rebuke to the self-constructed life and, in God's gra- and the fact that in God's grammar of salvation, we are never the subject of the verb. God is the subject. Second, look at the personal pronouns in this passage. Not fun to do grammar in church, eh? I didn't know what pronouns were when I was young, that. God blessed us. He chose us. Predestined us. Blessed us. God grace on us. Whenever Paul is talking about the recipients of the spiritual blessings in this passage, he's always talking about us, we, and our. Plural. He's always talking about the church. Now, we have a problem because we, when we read this sort of thing, we inevitably individualize these sorts of passages. God chose me. He predestined me. He chose me. He lavished grace on me. All of which are true, but which aren't what Paul is saying here. If God, is the subject of all the verbs in this passage, is like the right hook to the self-constructed life... The repeated personal pronouns, us, we, and our, are like the jabs at the body. I was never a boxer. I don't know if this metaphor works. But it's like the incessant jabs at the body to the self-constructed life. There is no self in the self-constructed life. Because I am who I am only because of who we are. Because of people like Edith and Ken and countless other people in this church. When Paul is talking about the spiritual blessings of God... They belong, first and foremost, not to me, but to the church. At our baptisms, we were adopted into this family, and that is who the blessings of God belong to. All right. Right hook, jabs to the body, now the Pauline haymakers. That still work? Many of you know Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. I actually didn't know it very well, but when I was explaining some of this, the contents of this sermon to a friend, uh, a brother-in-law, actually, who will go rem- remain unnamed, uh, he brought up Dickens' Christmas Carol. It's a brilliant analogy. I didn't know it very well, so I made a friendly visit to sparknotes.com this week to refresh my memory, which is also coincidentally the way I made it through high school English. <laughs> so, in Christmas Carol, Jacob Marley sends the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future to visit Scrooge. All in the hope that, as Scrooge sees his past and his present and his future, that it will change who he is now. And so that Scrooge won't end up with the fate that Marley has. This isn't a bad analogy for what Paul is doing in this passage. Paul's writing this letter for a series of churches that are spread across what we now (coughs) know as modern Turkey, He's writing it for Gentile people who are new to Christian faith, who don't have the sort of heritage of faith that Paul does as a Jew. And he's desperately trying to shape their identities so that these people, these new Christians, can begin to live Christianly in a pagan world. And he does it. He tries to shape their identity by telling them their story and by weaving them into a story that gives them a past, that gives them a present... And that gives them a future. So first, the past. Verses 4 and 5. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and he predestined us for adoption to himself as heirs through Jesus Christ. One of the uh, devastating parts of Alzheimer's disease, or dementia, this will be personal for some people in this room is that so much of our identity, so much of who we are, is bound up with our ability to remember. It's bound up with our capacity not to forget the past. And when we forget, when we lose the ability to remember, we lose a sense of who we are and of how to act. When I was pastoring up at that CRC church in British Columbia, there was a lovely family in our church whose mom was going through early-onset Alzheimer's in her late 50s. It was devastating. I didn't know Magda before her Alzheimer's, and I was told by others that she was a beautiful and amazing woman. But I know that when I looked into her eyes, as Alzheimer's had taken its toll, there was a hollowness and an emptiness there. Because losing our ability to remember Takes away so much of our sense of who we are and how to act. I think much of the shallowness and the hollowness and the emptiness of the church in the West today can be traced back to a sort of churchly Alzheimer's, where we don't remember our past. We don't know who we are because we don't know our heritage of faith. And so we have to make it all up again. We have to all make it all up again every Sunday, week after week after week. We have to make it all up afresh because we don't know our past, so we don't know who we are. And against the self-constructed church, Paul proclaims a past for the church that extends back into the eternal heart of God. God chose his church before the foundation of the world. If we believe that, that our identity extends back before the foundation of the world, if we remember this, then it changes us. But it isn't just nostalgia. Paul doesn't proclaim our past so that we can somehow rest in it, although that is good, but so that we can be shaped by it in order to walk confidently forward. Look at verse 4 again. Paul doesn't stop after the first clause. He says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. So election has a purpose. And it's the same purpose that was given to Israel in Exodus chapter 19, to be holy and blameless, to be a kingdom of priests. Now what do priests do? Priests stand between people and God, right? They gather up the praises of creation and they offer it to God. And they take the atoning, loving, forgiving mercy of God and offer it to creation. And that's what the church is chosen for. To be a kingdom of priests, holy and blameless, who stand between a holy God and a world and gather up the praises of creation and offer it to God. And if we don't, the very rocks will cry out. I listened to the choir when I was younger. To gather up the praises of creation and to offer them to God and to take the holiness and the love and the mercy of God and to offer it to creation. The church stands between God and creation and holds them together and mediates between them. That is what we are for. That is who we are. Our election doesn't just have a present purpose, though, to be holy and blameless. It has a future purpose as well. Look at verse 5. Our predestination is according to the purpose of his will. Which begs the question, what's the purpose of his will? Keep reading. Verse 9. God's making known to his church the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Which begs the question, what's the mystery of God's will? Keep reading. Verse 10. It's not rocket science. You just need to read To unite all things in him. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. So God has a plan. The mystery of God's plan is that in the end, God is going to unite all things to himself. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, together again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and in the end, God is going to take the heavens and the earth, and he is going to unite them again in Jesus Christ. This is God's plan. This is the mystery of his will. The verb is anacephalia, literally to draw all things, the scattered things of this world, and to draw them up into their head, namely Jesus Christ. That's the vision. That's the trajectory of our world. then Paul says that God chose the church to be a foretaste of God's final plan for the world, so that in the church, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, rich and poor, urban and rural, liberal and conservative, might be one in Christ. So that when the world looks at the church a world that is divided and fractured when the world looks at the church it sees its future. At least that's God's plan. Which is why it's so devastating when the church is divided. Because instead of pointing the world towards its promised future it reflects the fractures the world. So this is our past. But Paul also gives us a present. Verse 7, 11, 13. In him we have redemption. We, in him we have forgiveness. In him we have an inheritance. Not the future tense. Not will have redemption. Not will have forgiveness. In him we have present tense. But here's the key. All of this present identity of ours, <coughs> our having redemption, our having forgiveness, our having been sealed with the Spirit, all of this is only true in Christ. So before you write your letters to counsel, that Bench said that all will be saved? No, I didn't. And no, I'm not. Because when Paul says that all things will be united in Christ, he's saying that salvation will extend as far and as high and as wide and as deep as creation itself. But he's not saying that every individual will be saved. The rest of the Bible is clear that some will be outside of Christ. It seems. And Ephesians one is equally clear that some seem. Ephesians is equally clear. Some are outside of Christ. But the siren song of this passage is that all spiritual blessings are available to the church and to us if we are in Christ. Glance over the passage again. It's everywhere. Verse 3, blessed us in Christ. Even as he chose us in him. Next one. Uh, As heirs through Jesus Christ, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Next one. In him we have redemption, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. In him we have an inheritance. We, who are the first to hope, in Christ. In him. In him you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Everything, all the spiritual blessings that God wants to give to his church are located in Christ, in him, through him. Everything that we have, every bit of our identity... Is only true and bound up with and in Jesus Christ so to say it as strongly as possible the only way to be truly human your best life now which is garbage the only way to be truly human is to be in Christ because Christ is the true human who teaches us how to be human you can't relativize Christ There's no such thing as a Christian identity apart from him. If you want to make yourself this New Year's Day, if you want to construct your own identity, you can't have him. If the church wants to construct its own identity, it can't have him. There's no salvation, no redemption, no forgiveness, no inheritance, no hope apart from, outside of, Jesus Christ. But, if you are in Christ, Every spiritual blessing. So we have a past. We have a present in Christ. And Paul gives us a future. Verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now, an inheritance is, by definition, forward-looking. It's about the future. The problem is that for many of us, when we look towards the future, it brings about a certain sense of anxiety and dread. I suspect that for many of us, the self-constructed life is a tangible way to try and take control of a future that scares us. This is why we try and make these choices, to, to make our future It gives us control. And in a world, in a technological world in which we can manipulate and control so much, we recently heard that we're gonna be getting our fast food from robots soon. It's crazy. I don't like it. (coughs) Give me a human. We still can't doctor the future. Paul's answer to this fear of the future is the spirit. The Greek word translated here as guarantee is the word arabone. It's an economic term. You've got some financial advisors in here, right? An economic term for you. It means first installment or down payment. And just like a down payment on a house, something I have no experience with, just like a down payment on a house, the Spirit is a guarantee that more is to come, that our future isn't in doubt. It's the promise that more is coming, Right? i give you some money, I'll give you some more later. The Spirit is God's guarantee. The presence of the Spirit in our lives and in our church is God's guarantee that there's more to come. But it's not just a guarantee about a future. It's not an IOU. It's not telling people that we'll pay them later. It's actually, I mean, when you make a down payment on a house, the bank can use that money, right? Again, I said, I don't have experience with this. They can use that money, Correct. The Spirit isn't just a promise for the future. The Spirit is the presence of that future now, in our lives and in our churches. The Spirit is the first installment of the life of heaven given to us now. charged with resolutions about how to change your life, may you be released from the tyranny of having to control your life. Take and eat, friends, of a different gospel, a gospel that says that you have an identity as a gift. Live in the freedom of that. May it change you. May it shape this church. May it give you rest from the frantic pursuit of having to make your own life. And in 2017, may 2017 be for you a year in which you experience the freedom not to choose. Amen. this is the grace that we seek. To know deep within us that we are your children, that we belong to you, that you are the giver of all good gifts, and we don't need to make ourselves. Father, grant us this grace to know we belong. Jesus' name.